0: If you have your Bibles, Uh, we'll continue to worship the Lord through uh, time in His Word. We'll be reading uh, Psalm 22, and if you're visiting with us uh, in the summer, we're going to be working through some of the Psalms. We won't always follow a particular order, uh, but we're trusting that as the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us, that we'll spend uh, time in the Psalms uh, for the next several years. And so we hope to, at the end of that, uh, make sure that we're touching on Psalms of Messiah, psalms of lament, uh, psalms of praise, that we, God's people, would learn to sing and to cherish these beautiful passages in our hearts. And so we'll be in Psalm 22 this morning. If you have your Bibles, it's on page 457. To the choir master, according to the Doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let him deliver him, they say. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint, and my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O oh Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord shall live forever. Let's pray. Father, uh, we love you and we bow before you and we do ask you by your spirit and through the work of your son to be our teacher, to be our encourager, to be our comforter, to be our rock, to be our ever-present help in time of trouble. Would you come to your people and give us wisdom and insight that we might behold the beautiful things from your law? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every 18 months or so, uh, something we call the total solar eclipse happens. And a total solar eclipse happens when uh, you have Earth that's here, and between Earth you have the moon, and beyond the moon is the sun. And the total eclipse happens when the moon, it sort of gets in the way of the light of the sun. And if you're on the path of totality, then in your particular part of the world, during that once out of 18-month occurrence, things are bright outside, and then for a moment, darkness comes upon uh, the face of the land. Now, total eclipses happen every 18 months, but if you're lucky or fortunate to be in the path of totality, it's going to be another 375 years before that particular path sees a a total eclipse, but they're happening all over our world every 18 months. I think that's a helpful way to understand what's happening in our passage, that I think it's possible, right, to enter a season in life where the goodness of God is eclipsed and something gets in the way, and that something is usually trials and suffering. And so you have us like right here on the earth and we're accustomed to the light of God breaking forth. And then there's this season that we enter. And you might call it the dark night of the soul. You might call it a long period of spiritual depression. But what we're trying to put words to is this season in life where the light and presence of God, it doesn't break in. And darkness comes upon the land. And your neighbor, who may be 75 miles north, they have light. Your spouse may have light. Your child may have light. But for some reason, it feels as if or everyone else is benefiting from the light of God. You're met with darkness. And it's hard. And most of the time, suffering and trials that are eclipsing the light of the Lord. I think that's a helpful analogy to understand this passage, that by the time we finish reading Psalm 22, David will introduce us to bulls and a lion and dogs and wild oxen and dehydration and starvation and weight loss and beeswax and a dice game. And of course, he's not literally being attacked by lions. He's not literally being attacked by dogs. But here's what he's doing, he's reaching into world And he's trying to use these things to give us a picture of what it's like to be in the darkness. And so he reaches out into the animal kingdom. He reaches out into nature. And what he's trying to do is to approximate for us what it feels like when we are in the season of darkness. And I venture to say that you might be here this morning, and this is where you are. Life is hard. And your children have light, your friends have light, and for some reason your lot in this moment, it feels dark. And you're accustomed to God's presence. You're accustomed to seeing Him and savoring Him. You're accustomed to the inner working of the Spirit, which bears witness to your soul that you are a son or a daughter, and for this season, you don't, you aren't aware of Maybe you're here this morning and you're just like, man, I wish we could talk about something different. That ain't where I am, Pastor, right? And I would just say to you, you're one of hundreds of people in here this morning. And while that may not be where you are, maybe God is calling you to learn how to bear the burden of a brother or sister who is there. Or maybe you will be there. Jesus says, we don't know what will happen to us tomorrow. Maybe that is coming your way. And like the squirrels in my front yard who burrow and hide little nuts so that they can come back later, maybe God has given you a word, a word to hide in your heart. And when that season comes, you know where to go read and you know what to pray and you know how to think biblically about this situation. what I want to do is let David teach us. The first thing I want us to look at is is David's crisis. The eclipse begins. I want to stay with that image of the eclipse, of of something getting between uh, David's awareness of God's goodness and presence. And so David's crisis, the eclipse begins, is our first point. Uh, When reading this passage, we don't really know the events surrounding uh, the writing of this psalm. It's not like some of the other psalms where David will say, hey, I wrote this when I was seeking repentance for sinning against Bathsheba and the Lord. It's not like the other ones where he writes when he's running from his life, from Absalom. He doesn't sort of qualify when or the events surrounding this psalm, but as you read it, you know just from reading it, he's not in a good place. Now, this is a messianic psalm, which means that, 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 that somehow we have to work our way to Jesus. But as Tremper Longman, in his beautiful book on how to read the psalms, reminds us, he says These psalm, this psalm, even though it's messianic, it still needs to be understood in its historical context. And so we don't know a lot about the historical context, but we do know where David is. What's going on in David's life? He's suffering and his suffering is public. Did you catch verse 7? He actually says, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And in the Hebrew, it's a little bit disjointed. It says they, plural, wag their head singular, right? And so you get this image that there's a, a multiplicity of people, but the people are doing the same thing. They're sneering and jeering at David. And on top of this, there's public mocking. Look at verse 8. They were saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is their way of saying, okay, you say you're God's anointed. You say you're the king. You say you're the man of God's own heart. Well, let's just see if God gets you out of this one. That's what's happening. This isn't private. Whatever's going on, it's really public. And then something strange happens in the text. David starts to steal images from the animal kingdom to describe what he's feeling. And this should not surprise us. If you turn one psalm over to Psalm 23, it starts, The Lord is my shepherd, and I shall not want. And so, what is David doing in the very next psalm? If the Lord is his shepherd, then David likens himself to a sheep. Now, lay that on top of what the images you start to see in this passage. David is a sheep. And notice what he says in verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. One scholar makes a note that Bashan, first, is a real place, and secondly, they were noted for their ferocious bulls. In college, I had a fraternity brother, and don't crucify me, uh, never mind. And he bred pit bulls, and he fought. Pit bulls, and he had one pit bull, and that, that that I still remember the name of the dog, and it was Red Man, and Red Man was a red pit bull. He looked like he worked out on CrossFit, right? <laughs> and my frat brother used to shoot him up with steroids, and when we would go to his house, he would let Red Man out of the cage, and we would all run, right? He had this reputation for breeding the best and most ferocious pit bulls in Northern Alabama. And when David says the bulls of Bashan are encircling me, he's thinking about a real place with real ferocious animals. And he's accruing that to humans. That is how they are on me. Like those bulls bred in that famous place And I have no chance against them. But he doesn't just stay with the bull imagery, right? Then he moves right down there in verse 13. They open their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And David knows a thing or two about lions. If you go back and read 1 Samuel 17, before he kills Goliath, what does he say? He says, I killed bears, plural, and lions, plural, and I will kill this giant. And so when David uses this lion-like imagery to describe what people are doing and saying and are are, are doing to him, he's doing this from a memory of, I, I know what lions are like. They are ferocious, and they are vicious, and they are strong, and they want their prey. I've seen them face to face, and that, that is what it feels like to be in the darkness. When everyone around me is talking, everywhere I go, they're saying something about something I did. They're using their words and their mouths to destroy me. This is what David is saying. And then in verse 16, he shifts from the the bulls to the lion. Now he's talking about dogs. The dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. So you know he's not literally talking about dogs. He says the dogs are the evildoers. But when you see dogs in the passage, Don't think about your domesticated pets that you name and that you give your ice cream on their birthdays, right? (laughs) Dogs did not have that status in Israel. They were nasty. And they were packed like wild hunters. You remember when Jezebel was killed? You remember when they went to go to try to bury her? They said none of her remains were there. Because the dogs ate it all. That's what David is saying. The people are like dogs. They're wild and they're looking to devour me whole. And then you get to verse 16, it says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. But in the Hebrew, it, it's like a lion, my hands and feet. And we're adding a verb there. But it, it's, again, it's this image that they're, they, they're, they're getting me. They're piercing my soul. They're about to kill me. And, and what is this doing to David? You see it in verse 14, it says, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like beeswax. It is melted within my breast. This is not King David who is strong and mighty. This is King David who was weak, who was limp, who was afraid, who was anxious, who was fearful. And then it moves from him describing what this suffering feels like to the body, to what it's doing, right? I mean, from, from the soul, now it's moving to the body. He says in verse 15, the roof of my mouth is as dry as a potsherd. My tongue sticks to my jaws. What's a potsherd? It's a clay vessel. And if you've done anything with pottery, it starts out with this wet mixture that you eventually have to put in the oven. And once you bake it, the moisture wicks away and you have this clay vessel that on the one hand is a solid, but you also know that it's brittle and it's frail that's what David is saying, frail, brittle. And I think what's happening here, he starts to talk about being able to count his bones, how thirsty he is, that, that have you ever been so depressed or sad or in grief that you don't eat, that you lose an appetite? See, I think what David is doing is describing what it's like to be in the darkness when your tears become your food and you're weak. And what do they want to do with David? The text actually says that they cast lots for his garments. If David is truly the king, then he does not wear normal garments like you and I. He wears royal attire. And that metaphor is not just I want his clothing. That metaphor is I want his kingdom. I want to divide it, and we want him off the throne. Isn't that what happened with Absalom? Was he not plotting to make himself king and to date David's entire kingdom and split it the way that he wanted it? That is what they want. He's the talk of the town. He's scorned. He's mocked. He's made fun of. It reminds me of a 30 for 30 that I watch, and it's about a man by the name of Andreas Escobar. And uh, it was in 1994, the World Cup, and he played for the Colombian national team. And Colombia was playing the United States, and we were kind of new to soccer. And so everyone thought that Colombia would just blow us out and their path would be clear to the World Cup. Well, Andreas Escobar, he inadvertently kicked the ball into his own goal and he cost the Colombian team the entire game and they were disqualified. And the USA went on to lose to Brazil and Brazil went on who defeated Italy and the Brazilians won the World Cup. And so that made things even worse, right? That, that his loss, that the winner of the World Cup came right through the heat that they were in. And so he was the talk of the country, that there were death threats against him and against the wisdom of those who cared about him. He still went home to Colombia, and his friends betrayed him. They took him out to a club and in the club they left him and someone came up after the club and shot him. And every time they shot him, they said, go. Go, go. And they murdered him right there. And you want to know why? He was the talk of the country. Everyone looked at him and they shake their heads at him. Look at that loser. He cost us the game. That is where David is. You ever been there? I haven't yet. We're not presidents. And we're not governors, and we're not mayors, and we're not Davids. But have you done something scandalous where you become the talk of the town, the talk of the church, the talk of your family, the talk of your neighborhood, the talk of your college? Maybe you've been unfaithful in your marriage, and word is out, and everywhere you go, People appointing. Right? Or maybe you're the spouse and your 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 significant other broke covenant. And now you feel ashamed because you feel like that that, that what they will say to you, look at them, look at her, look at him. And you feel the shame associated with this thing. Or maybe you got pregnant and you weren't married, right? And you kind of feel the shame because you have tarnished a family name, right? And you feel it, right? And you feel that just this week. And it broke my heart. One of our own police officers committed suicide right on 220 over a scandal of an improper and inappropriate relationship with a teenager. And the pastor in me wants to say, I know we can be cruel and it's wrong and I don't want to make that right. But there can be light at the end of the tunnel. I want to tell that 16-year-old girl, I know it's wrong, and I know what happened is wrong. And Facebook is vicious because people will talk and post, and on top of your sin, you have the public shame. It's a big deal, and this is where David is in the passage. We don't know what has happened, but whatever has happened is public, and everybody knows it. This is the crisis he's in. The second thing we see in the passage is the catastrophe. The eclipse is total. As hard as it is for whatever this thing is that has happened back there in David's life, we don't know, but as hard as whatever that is, is, that is not the catastrophe catastrophe of the passage. What is more difficult than what the people are doing to David? I'll tell you. It's what God isn't doing. And this is a key to reading some of the psalms. You can discern the theme of the psalm. Usually by the opening verses. And when you look at this psalm. Did you notice when David introduces. The crisis of the people. It's not down until you get to verse 7. You know what's most catastrophic in this passage it's my God my God why have you forsaken me why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning oh my God I cry by day but you do not answer and by night I find no rest in verse 11 be not far from me trouble is near and there was no one to help me look at verse 20 deliver me from the sword my precious life from the power of the dog that what you see David is doing he is saying that trouble is near it's real and it's hard but you want to know who's far away who's far away from him in the time of trouble at least how David feels in this moment is God trouble is near My name is being tattered in the streets. Look at what I've done. Look at what they're saying. And to make matters worse, where are you in this situation? You see, I think that's what makes suffering alone so difficult. Trials by themselves are enough. But when you suffer alone, it's worse. And that's why the Bible constantly says, bear one another's burdens, Don't let your brother or sister endure the hardships of this world alone. What they need in those moments are people and the work of the spirit to be near. And what's worse than trials alone? It's when the person who has been there in the past doesn't show up. And that's what David is wrestling through. He's saying, look, you've been there. When Israel called to you, you answered. But here I am calling to you day and night and you're not here. And so what's worse than that when you're alone and no one is there and the one who used to be there isn't there. And then what's even worse than that when they know you're suffering and they still don't respond. It's like sending the SOS text. Baby girl, I'm about to lose them. I'm done with life. And your friend reads your text and a little bubble pops up and you know they read your text and they do nothing about it. How does that feel? And then you drive to their house. And they are in the house, like, kicking it, doing doing nothing. And all of a sudden, you're like, hey, I need some help over here. And you get nothing. That is painful. It is hard. And what's harder than that? It's what you read in verse 15. I struggle with this verse, Redeemer. He says, my strength is dried up like a pot shirt, and my tongue sticks to my jaws, And look at that last verse, and you lay me in the dust of death. Who is David talking to? He's talking to God. What makes this even more difficult is this is not arbitrary. That in your divine providence, you are laying me in the dust of the ground. And God is not a sinner. He's not the author of sin. But Scripture oftentimes speaks of God using and, and, and working behind these bitter providences for his glory and for our good. And what David is saying is the Lord behind everything that's happening. This is you. Your hand is doing this to me. And that hurts when you get that glimpse, that the God who runs the universe is using suffering and shame and embarrassment and failure for a good and glory that hurts us in the moment. And that is where David is. This is not the complaining The cry of a complaining servant. This is the sob of a broken hearted child asking, Daddy, where are you when I need you? If you've watched The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, my favorite episode of them all, of them all, is when Will's dad comes back into his life. And he shows up and he makes these promises that we're going to go. And then Will packs his bag and he's ready to go with his dad and his dad doesn't show up. And he says, Uncle Phil, what's wrong with me? Why doesn't my father want me or desire me? That's what David feels right here. Why are you silent? Why are you absent? Why are you far away while your son or daughter is hurting? This is the total eclipse. No light is breaking in. You've been there before? Where you go through the motions you go to your same spot in your same house at the same time to spend time with your same god and you get nothing What does it do to David? He's fighting. Did, did you notice what this does? It sends him into a tailspan That that I think he's gripping and grasping for something to hold on to. And you see it in verses 3, 4, and 5. You're enthroned on the praises of Israel and you are fathers trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and you, they were rescued and they were not put to shame. But then right after that he says, but I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised. He remembers his personal journey in verses 9 and 10, yet you are the one who took me from the womb. You made me trust in you and my mother's breast. On you was I cast from my birth. And then he says, but many bulls are encompassing me. What you see him doing is he's fighting for light. He's fighting to believe what he knows. And yet at the end of the day, he isn't feeling that. He's not experiencing that. Been there before? You're fighting and trying, and you're getting nothing. So David is, and if you live long enough, I think we all go there, because the Lord wants to work something out in us that we don't always see and understand. There's a theme here about the fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the trust of the Lord. And that behind our suffering, that that God wants a greater fear, a greater reverence, a deeper trust. And sometimes he has to do that to us. And here's the good news in the passage. This is our last point. That David's catastrophe is completed. That I love that there's a turn in our psalm. And I, I would say to you, if you're here this morning, there is always a turn that your darkness is never forever. Your feeling of forsakenness is never forever. And you see it in our passage. Did you notice what David says in verse 14? He says, you lay me in the dust. And then when you get down to verse 20 and 21, David actually says, and, and, and it's hard to see it in our, in our English Bibles, but he actually, he, he is commanding the Lord. I command you to cause me to be delivered from the sword, right? that he says it again, that I I desire you to cause me to be saved from the mouth of the lion. In other words, David knows that there is one who put him in the situation and the only one to get him out of the situation is the one who put him there to begin with. That David's not going to think himself out of this. His enemies are not going to relent on their own. The only way for him to come out of the darkness is the one who put him there gets to work. And here is what you see happening in the passage. It happens so fast that if you blink your eye, you'll miss it in the passage. Did you notice what happens? That there's a turn in the psalm in verse 21. He's like, but you, O Lord, don't be far off. Come quickly to help me deliver my soul, my precious life. Save me, deliver me. And then look at verse 21 in the very same sentence that David is crying out for the Lord to help. Notice what he says. And you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And look at the rest of the psalm, and I will tell your name to my brothers. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All the offspring of Jacob, glorify him, for he is not despised or abhorred. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. In other words, there is a change. God does show up, and God does relent. And David, who is complaining and groaning and crying out, is instantly transformed into the lead worshiper of Israel. And David, the one crying out, is now commanding others. He shows up and he hears. He does not ignore your cries. Join me as we worship this grand God. David starts to change in verse 21. He goes from being weak with no vigor to verse 25. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. I will declare praise with more than my lips, but with my life is what David is saying. And then David gets a glimpse of God's global mission. Look at verse 27. At the all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship you. Kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. David gets a glimpse, not just into his own situation, but he gets a glimpse that this is how the Lord treats all people. He will humble them and he will raise them up that they might fear and trust in him and it will not be restricted to Israel. This thing will flow to the ends of the earth and then David sees what happens after the end. Did you notice what he says in verse 26 and 29? The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. Their hearts will live forever. All the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. What is this eating, this meal that David is talking about? It's the meal of victory. It's what you see in the book of Job. After Job has suffered, you know what the end of Job says? All who knew Job came to his home and they ate. It's what he talks about in Psalm 23. He will prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. This is not just a regular meal for calories, Redeemer. This meal that David sees, it's the meal of all meals where God's people will sit at Jesus's table And we will come from near and far, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. And we will bow and worship and be fed at the table. David sees it. And here's the question that we ought to be asking. How do I know that he will deliver me out of my darkness? I have a pessimist in me. They'll say, oh, that was true for David, but that that ain't true for me. Look at me. I'm I'm not like him, right? How do you know right where you are that if and when those seasons come, that your Father in heaven will not abandon you to them? How do you know? Here's how you know. Because while David wrote this, This psalm is also about the second David. It's about Jesus Christ. That the psalms are quoted more times in the New Testament than any other book. And Psalm 22 is quoted more times than any other psalm. And when it is quoted in the New Testament, you know who it's talking about? Not the first David, but the second David. Did you notice in the words that Fee read, Jesus said, I thirst in order to fulfill scripture. When David writes about his mouth being dry as a pot when David writes about mighty bulls of Bashan encompassing him, when David writes about the, they want to divide up my garments. Do you know that all of these things apply to the greater David? That the greater David, Jesus Christ, was the one who was mocked by men and women. He was the one who they wanted to crucify, and you free a murderer. He was the one from the cross. They're saying, if you're really God, then save yourself, get down over, off the cross. He was the one who was really thirsty. He was the one that the soldiers had a dice game at the foot of the cross to, 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 to divide up his garments, right? He was the one who cried out, my God, my God. Why are you forsaking me? And he had a right to say that. He had been with the Father forever, never committed any sin. If anyone who deserved to not be forsaken, it was him. And yet on the cross, he could exclaim, My God, my God, why are you forsaking me of all people? And the Father forsook him, Redeemer. So that he can ever have open arms towards you and I. He cannot go against the atoning work of his son. His son was the only one who was unjustly crucified and killed. His son was the only one to experience what David is trying to give us in shadows. Jesus experienced it in its fullness so that we are never ever, ever, ever forsaken, ever, ever. And we got to write that on our hearts because sometimes our feelings betray us. And this is where praying this prayer is really helpful. We can pray it this way. Oh, my God, you can never, ever forsake me because you forsook your son. And so that you are always and ever For me, I am always your son, always your daughter, always your child. And this privilege is mine, not because I'm righteous. I might be wrong and I might be in the wrong and I might have been trifling and I might even deserve what is on the front page of the newspaper. But if I'm yours, you will never, ever leave me or forsake me. And you promised that to me because of the finished work of Christ. And so I say to you, if you're in the darkness this morning, don't trust your feelings. Trust the finished work of your Savior. If you're in the darkness this morning, cry out. Your Father hears you and he delights in you. If you're in the darkness this morning, weeping might endure for the night. But joy cometh in the morning. And Jesus guarantees that for you. And so I'll close with these words from a precious song. It is the dark night of my soul and temptations taking hold. But through the pain and the suffering, through the heartache and the trembling, yet I am loved. Might you believe that this morning? You're loved. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and I pray particularly for those of us who are in a hard season. I pray that the light of your grace, the beauty of your presence, the glory of Jesus might shine into our hearts and that what we know in our minds will be aligned with what we feel Would you do this for your glory and your honor? In Jesus' name, amen.